Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. First Peter. So last week we looked just at the first two verses and the three words that we were looking at, identity statement, elect exiles who were scattered. So Peter wrote to several churches in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, that circle on the map, and they were all experiencing persecution to some degree. And he called them elect exiles who were scattered. And we said, we're not persecuted, but that identity statement still applies to us. We're elect, we're chosen, we're, we're selected, we're, we're picked. It speaks to care and to concern, but we're exiles. We're temporary residents in a world that is not our home. We're sojourners or we're pilgrims. And so that, that, that's gonna create some friction and some tension because we, we're not living in step with the dominant culture in which we, 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 we live our life. And we're scattered. And it's helpful for me to think of this as um, kind of God's sovereignty to say I am where I am because he's put me there. I don't think that's fatalistic. I think I'm just acknowledging, yeah, I might have made some bad decisions or I might have made some decisions even without consulting him, but he's sovereign and he redeems all things and I am where I am because it's where he wants me to be. And that, that to me is a helpful posture to take towards where I'm living and working, going to school, those kinds of things. So we're elect exiles who are scattered. Today, we're gonna look at uh, Peter starts a prayer and then he kind of quickly moves into preaching mode. Um, what God has done for us and then what our expected response is. And this is just a disclaimer. I think the letters, in the, the New Testament letters, Paul's, Peter's, John's, they're, to me, they're super dense. And so we're gonna leave some things on the table and that's just for the sake of us kind of keeping moving through the book. So I, I won't say everything that there is to say for sure, um, but I'll, I'll just try to hit a few highlights for us. So starting in verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Father's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen Jesus, you love him, and even though you don't see Jesus now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when the Spirit predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to these prophets that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told, by the, that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So, mercy. We'll start there. Mercy is like a, is a sibling of grace. I like to think of mercy as God withholding the punishment that we're due. So our sins deserve death. In his mercy, the Father withheld death from us and he gave us new life. That word's actually regeneration. The, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives at conversion is so radical, it's so profound that phrases like new birth, born again, 
new creation, regeneration. That's how it's described. It's a, it, the, the Old Testament says you, you get a heart transplant. You had a heart of stone, and now I'm giving you a heart of flesh. This is a radical work. Some people think, you know, they talk about being radically saved or having a radical conversion, and some of us are like, that's, that's not me. Every conversion is radical. They're not all dramatic, but they're all radical. The work that's done in us, again, is incredibly profound. This is not bad people becoming good or good people becoming better. It's dead people coming back to life. That's what we just sang. We can't, you can't overstate the change. It's you, you've been born into a new reality, born into a new existence as, as what, what, what's the word, as kind of phenomenal, incredible, as um, life-altering as your physical birth, which you don't remember and I don't remember. Our spiritual birth is likewise. It's that, it, it's that all-encompassing in terms of what, what happens in our hearts. And then Peter says, and here's a couple of things that you've been born into. There's more, but for you guys who are being persecuted, who are being squeezed, here's a couple of things to encourage you. This new birth, it's into a living hope and it's into a secure and permanent inheritance. That, that's part of what you get. A, a living hope, a, a confident expectation of a better future that can't be extinguished. That's a living hope. When we use the word hope, we use it almost the exact opposite of the way it's used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, hope is a confident expectation of a better future. The way we use it, it's something that we really don't think will happen, but we kind of we wish it would. We hope. I hope so. That's usually for us, we're lowering our expectations. This is something that I want, but I'm not really sure, so I'm just, I, I hope. I'm not really confident. That's not the way the New Testament uses it at all. It's a confident expectation of a better future. What's this confidence rooted in? It's rooted in a conviction that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. A conviction that God is making all things new, that God redeems all things, that there's a new heaven and a new earth, that, that and the first heaven and the first earth are gonna pass away, that the kingdom will be established fully on earth as it is in heaven. That conviction is what gives us a confident expectation of a better future. And that conviction comes to us through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. You can look back and say, that happened. And when that happened, our primary enemies were all defeated. That's what the resurrection demonstrates. Sin couldn't stick to Jesus. Death couldn't hold Jesus. The enemy couldn't overpower Jesus. Satan couldn't overpower him. All of our primary enemies were defeated on the, at the cross, and the resurrection demonstrates that. So we can have this confident expectation of a better future. We can say, well, I know, even though my circumstances don't indicate this, I know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him because I can look back at that thing that I know happened in the past. So I can look forward to an un unknown future, an uncertain future with confidence because I can look back at the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. You see what Peter's doing. He's talking to people whose lives are difficult. They're being persecuted, they're being oppressed, they're being squeezed, and he's trying to get their eyes up a little bit. Lift up your head. What's happening here in your circumstances? Significant, difficult, you're suffering, absolutely. Let's get our eyes on, on this bigger picture of what God has done for you. This new birth that he's given to you. This living hope that you have, and then this inheritance 
This inheritance that it never perishes, it never spoils, it doesn't fade, it doesn't rot, it doesn't decay, it doesn't wither, it doesn't wilt. Again, if you're living in a context where the government can take your job and can take your home and can take your stuff to here, your inheritance, it's, it's secure. It can't be touched. It's kept in heaven. So even if you lose everything on this earth, you still have an inheritance, which is your salvation. That's what verse five says. Your salvation, your deliverance, it's secure. And even beyond that, God shields you. That's a military word. He guards you. He's, he's watching over you. So it's not just your inheritance that is in heaven. God is protecting you as well. Again, if you're in a situation where you can lose not just your stuff, where you can be arrested, where you can be beaten, where you may even be killed because of your relationship to Jesus, to hear, listen, God is he's watching over you. He's guarding you. He's got your inheritance, which is your salvation. It's your deliverance. Nobody can touch that. They can take everything you've got. They can't touch that. Even if you lose your life, he's got you. He's watching over you. He's guarding you. He, he, he doesn't say it's gonna be better tomorrow. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say anything about their circumstances. We get through 1 Peter, we'll see. He has some very practical things to say about how to live well under persecution. But here at the beginning, he's not talking about what they're experiencing. What he's saying is, let me set a broader context for you. This is what God has done for you. This, this is the ultimate reality. The life that you're living is in this context of a new birth, of the mercy of the Father, of a living hope, of a secure and permanent inheritance. So because of that, you can greatly rejoice. That word rejoice, it's a strong, it's joy plus. It speaks to being outwardly expressive because of, uh, because of this inward joy. And that inward joy is rooted in your understanding of your salvation. Because of what God has done for us, I can outwardly exult, even if my circumstances are pretty crummy. And he, he does acknowledge, he says, listen, I, I get it. Y'all are suffering grief due to various trials. Like, that's, that's not easy. But again, there's, there's a bigger picture. There's a, there's a broader context here. And just in case, church, you're saying, well, how are we supposed to rejoice when we are experiencing grief, this mental, emotional anguish because of the trials that we're experiencing? What, how are we supposed to do that? And he says, here, let me, let me give you a couple of reasons. One, God is always at work even in the midst of your trial. So this is an important word, a little bit of a tangent, but you'll see this word when you read through the Old Testament. So the same word can be translated temptation or trial or test, same word. Those words are not synonymous, temptation, trial, and test. There is overlap, but it's the same word. And so when you're reading and you see the word temptation, that's an enticement to sin. We flee temptation, that's what we're told to do. Trial and test, there's lots of connection there. I actually think a lot of times the same circumstances is both. So a trial, is, it's an ordeal. It's a difficult circumstance, usually something that's kind of thrust upon you from outside. It's some type of external pressure. A test, is, it's an examination. It's an opportunity to see the quality of your faith. So to me, the same circumstance from our perspective is a trial, it's an ordeal. From God's perspective, it's a test. It's an opportunity to see the quality of our faith. He wants to know, and he wants us to know. It's not a prove it kind of thing, it's just an opportunity. 
We're all a mixed bag. None of us have faith that's completely pure. In a test, trial, again, same, same word. I think a lot of times it's the same situation. It's an opportunity to see that. It's an opportunity to celebrate. Hey, look what God's done in my life. And it's an opportunity to say, hey, all right, here's some things to work on. Gold, when it's refined, so when it's heated up, the impurities rise to the top so they can be kind of skimmed off. And trials do that for us. They heat up our lives. And so the stuff that's in here rises to the surface. And you know this, every one of you has experienced this. Another way of talking about it that we uh, sometimes do is the word tribulation means to be squeezed. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? Whatever comes out of you comes out of you because it's in you. We can tend to look out and blame. Well, you don't know how annoying she is or how irritating that is. We blame. Well, there, there, it, there's something in here that's coming out. If it wasn't in here, then it wouldn't come out. It doesn't matter how annoying they are. If it's not in here, then it can't come out no matter how tightly you're squeezed. If it's not in here, then it doesn't matter how, how hot the, 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 the fire is. It's not in there to rise to the surface. And so Peter is saying to them, this is a trial. It's an ordeal. You are being persecuted. That's not fun. You're living under the weight of that. But recognize it's also a test. God is, God is getting to examine the genuineness of your faith. And the result of that is when you stand before Jesus, you're gonna be rewarded. Glory and honor, those things will be yours because of the genuineness of your faith. That same thing is true for us. And he goes on, he says, and speaking of your faith, your trust in Jesus, it's actually producing what you want it to. It's producing the salvation of your soul. It's, it results in the salvation of your soul. When we think of salvation, we tend to think forgiveness in the past. I was, for, I was saved when I was 10, when I was 12, when I was 14, 10 years ago, and there's absolutely truth to that. Salvation means deliverance. It has a present and a future aspect as well. We were delivered, we are being delivered, and we will be delivered finally when Jesus returns, and that's what Peter's talking about. Your trust in Jesus is resulting in, in, in your deliverance right now. Right now, that, that's what's happening. Your faithfulness, your loyalty to Jesus, commitment to Jesus, your love for Jesus, this, this one that you haven't seen. Peter has seen him. These guys haven't. You haven't seen him, but your faithfulness to him expresses your trust in him, and the result of your trust in him will be the salvation of your souls, which is the very thing you want. So yes, life is difficult right now, but you can greatly rejoice in what God has done for you. Why? Because that difficulty it is an opportunity to see the quality of your faith. That, that difficulty is an opportunity for, for your faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of that trial to demonstrate your trust in him. And that trust will result in your salvation. And then this thing with the Old Testament, where did that come from? So impossible for us, at least for me. You may have a better imagination than me. I think it's impossible to conceive of our world as if Jesus had not come. If we were still Old Testament, if we were still looking forward to the first Christmas, I don't think we can conceive of what our world would look like. Nobody has had a more profound impact on civilization, on the world than Jesus. Nobody. 
If you look at all of the things that he touched, education, healthcare, government, science, not to mention the billions of people whose lives have been tra- tra- transformed by him. Like we can't, we can't begin to get our minds around what, what we would be living in if he hadn't arrived. And what Peter is saying to these guys is, that's where you're, you're, you're living on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. These prophets, at times, they were speaking about the Messiah and they wanted to know who he was. And the Holy Spirit told them, this is not for you. This is for future generations. Even angels wanted to know. They knew a Messiah was coming. They didn't know who he was either. You guys are so privileged that you know the one that you're suffering for. It's Jesus. You guys are so privileged that you're living on this side of the resurrection. You're not, you're, you're not waiting anymore. And again, for us, that, that kind of bounces off of us because we can't even conceive of what life would be like B.C., we don't know. But again, there's, there's something there about Peter saying, yes, you can rejoice in the midst of suffering because of the times, just that simple, the time in which you live. You live on the other side of the cross and resurrection so you can know the Messiah. You know the one that you're suffering for. You know he's worth it. You know he is. You're not having to wonder like people were before that first Christmas. So how does that land on us? Two things. One, for some of you, and I want to be sensitive because this is pulling a scab off, but I think it's important. For some of you, your living hope is on life support. So maybe a distinction. I, just, I made this up, but I think it's helpful. So hope with a capital H. So that's, that should be, and I mean that should, it should be unshakable. That capital H hope, it's Revelation 21 and 22. God is making all things new. First heaven and first earth are gonna pass away. There's gonna be a new heaven, a new earth. He's gonna wipe away every tear. There's gonna be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All of that. Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna right every wrong. We're gonna get a new body that doesn't fall apart. All of that is capital H hope. So we can look forward to that confidently because God said it's gonna happen. That's, it's above our pay grade. It's going to happen. It's just like if you were living in the Old Testament times, you could say the Messiah is gonna come because God said so. And again, that's, a, that's above our pay grade. That's just what he's decided to do. So he has said, this is what the future holds. I'm going to do this. I'm going to redeem all things. I'm going to take care of every source of evil and eradicate them. I'm going to unwind every effect of the fall. All of that's gonna happen. And so we can have a confident expectation about that ultimate future because you can read it in Revelation 21 and 22. There are other places in the New Testament as well, but particularly most succinctly in those two chapters. That's where everything is headed. And so we can have a confident expectation about the ultimate future because God has said, this is what I'm gonna do. that, That hope should not be impacted by how crummy your life is at any given moment. And I mean that, I'm saying that, attempting to say that compassionately. That's not to minimize suffering. It's just to put our suffering in a larger context. Paul said his troubles were light and momentary. Have you ever read Paul's troubles? He was beaten 
five times. He was stoned. He was left for dead several times. He was shipwrecked a couple of times. He was hungry. He was, what are your troubles and my troubles compared? They're not even, they don't even need to be spoken of compared to what he experienced. And he calls them light momentary, and that's not rose-colored glasses. What he's saying is in light of this great mercy, in light of this new birth, in light of this living hope, in light of this secure and permanent inheritance, using Peter's language, what I'm experiencing now, it, 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 it is momentary. And in some ways, and I mean this again compassionately, it's insignificant in the bigger picture. And again, I understand how I'm saying that. Then there's our temporal hopes. And this is where most of us live. Most of us don't live in light of that capital H hope. It's these little H hopes. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, a longing fulfilled as a tree of life. And for all of us at some point, that's, we're gonna live that verse. That word deferred can mean um, drawn out. And that's how it feels at times, doesn't it? There's this thing I deeply desire to see and it's just getting drawn out. And that can be very difficult. And so for most of us, because we don't like pain, what we do when our hope is being deferred is we just turn it off. It's too hard. And I understand and I would love to gently challenge you this morning. Y'all know the story in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three friends of Daniel. Their king, his name's Nebuchadnezzar. They're in Babylon. He's a pagan king, and he builds a statue and says, when the music plays, everybody's got to worship. Some guys rat those three guys out. They're brought before the king, and he says, when the music plays, you got to worship. And their response, verses 16, 17, and 18, is beautiful. We don't have to defend ourselves in this, O king, they say, our God is able to deliver us from this ordeal. But even if he doesn't, we're not gonna worship your gods. We're not doing that. And we wanna live in that tension, that second song that we sang. We wanna live in the tension of saying, God works miracles. God heals people when the doctors say it's a done deal. God brings breakthrough in relationships. God resurrects dead opportunities. He, he, do, they, he does those things. He breaks into our circumstances and we want to be people who believe him to do that and trust him to do that and ask him to do that. We want to be people who say God is moved by the prayers of his people. And so we're going to pray. And we want to be people who, if we don't get the outcome that we want, we don't go anywhere. We're not going anywhere. He's worthy of our lives because he's him. Not because he gave us what we asked for. And that's a difficult tension to maintain. It's hard to do that because it hurts. It hurts to live in that hope deferred stage. It's difficult to continue to, to have a confident expectation of a better future when everything around you would say, give up. And so again, with compassion, if that's you, I'm not beating you, but I am pleading with you. What would it look like for you to, to bring that dying desire back to him? 
It can be scary. I think it's worth it. Second thing, and everybody experiences this. Most of you already have. If you haven't, you're going to. And you're, if you already have, you're, you're going to again. Difficulty, trial, ordeal. That's just part of life. We live in a fallen world. We're living against the grain of our culture. We're gonna suffer. I'm not talking about persecution. Um, difficult circumstances. It could be at work, maybe your body, your home. A difficult circumstance. So it's a trial. Again, it's an ordeal, but it's also a test. What is that difficult circumstance revealing about the quality of your faith? And I'll go ahead and tell you what it's revealing. It's revealing that you're a mixed bag, like all of us are. It's revealing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and that's what he produces. That's what he does. So that, that's in you, and it's coming out to some degree. And so is your flesh, just like mine. These are just a few that I picked. There are others. Just in my observation, when I see people experiencing difficulty, some people, when they experience difficulty, they kind of get their head up and they start looking around. And some people just get kind of like this. If you're that more externally oriented person, what tends to happen is you get angry. Now, you can be angry and not sin. It's just super, super, super rare. It's true. So anger is an intense dislike or hostility or displeasure. Jesus got angry and he didn't sin, but what made Jesus angry? When the temple wasn't being used for worship properly. Does that make you angry? Not me. What didn't make Jesus angry? When he was betrayed, when he was denied, when he was deserted, when he was falsely accused, when he was beaten, when he was misunderstood. Those, kind, those are the things that make us angry. And that's why I say it's super rare to, to, to experience righteous anger because for most of us, the things that displease us and annoy us are the things that are about us. They're not necessarily the things that displease and annoy God. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but I wouldn't necessarily start there. If you're an angry person, I wouldn't assume it's, I would assume it's unrighteous and then allow God to correct you. So this is why I think it's a big deal. Pride is the root of all kinds of sin, maybe all of them. I feel like anger is a close second. And I feel like we excuse it. Not pointing fingers. Entire cultures say, well, this is just the way we relate to one another. That's not okay. It's not okay. In the Bible, that word anger, oftentimes it's translated fits of rage. Well, that's not me. Have you ever been on the other side of you? Do you not, like, well, that's just how my parents were and that's how my grandparents were. That doesn't mean that's how you have to be. Do you want your kids to be that way? Like, you, we can be set free from that. It's not worse than anything else necessarily, but I do feel like it's a trigger for all kinds of nasty stuff that again, we justify because you just make me so angry. No, I'm just so angry and you happen to be standing on the other side of me. I need to take responsibility for that. I wanna take credit for the good things in my life and blame you for the bad things instead of giving God credit 
for the work he's done in my life and taking responsibility for the areas where I fall short. I use that word malice intentionally because it makes all of us take a step back. Nobody wants to say, well, that's me. I'm a malicious person. But that, it, 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 if you are someone, again, when, when you go through a difficult time, if there's a person who you feel like is squeezing you, that anger can quickly lead to malice. Thinking ill of them and then maybe even desiring something bad. You hurt me, so you need to feel some pain too. Super easy for that to happen. We wanna be careful. Others of us, when we go through suffering, we turn into Eeyore. Self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves. We get despondent in despair over the misfortune and suffering that we're experiencing. Now, what that, it doesn't mean that the misfortune and the suffering is not real. And there's no reason, I'm not making light of that. Our response is what matters. Self-pity is also not okay. Being the victim is not okay. Comparing to other people, that's, none of that's okay because none of it ultimately is leading to healing. Y'all know this, time doesn't heal anything. God heals everything if we let him. That self-pity can turn to bitterness. Bitterness is having a sour spirit, which then leads to a sour demeanor, sour words. When you look at somebody and we say this, he's a bitter old man, he's a bitter old woman. Trace the thread back. There's probably some kind of self-pity when they were a young man or a young woman and they just held on to it and it grew sour over time. Which is not to say that the suffering wasn't real or the misfortune wasn't real. It's how, how do we respond? How are we gonna respond? Not to be flippant. What Peter says to people who are experiencing persecution is greatly rejoice. I want you to outwardly exult in the salvation of God, the work of God in your life. James says, I want you to persevere. I want you to bear up well under these trials. And I think it's always helpful to say, God, what are you doing? How do you wanna use this? I'm not saying you cause it. I'm just saying, how do you wanna use this to make me more like Jesus? What are you trying to work in me? And what are you trying to work out of me? And those ordeals, those difficult times is oftentimes where we see the most growth. So again, I don't wanna be flippant with anyone's pain. I don't want to diminish anyone's suffering. I'm not doing that at all. I can't address every situation. So I'm just kind of speaking broadly here in saying we have a capital H hope that's not shaken by our circumstances. It's not. God's already said, that's what I'm gonna do. So we can always have a confident expectation about our ultimate future. These little H hopes that can be very, again, we can be heart sick when we're not seeing movement and result. Now, I want to encourage you to reopen that to the Lord. Be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God, you can do this. I know you can. But even if you don't, I'm not gonna get offended and walk away. I have great belief in your ability and your willingness. And I'm 100% committed regardless. We're all gonna experience suffering. We're all gonna go through 
trial. See the trial as a test, an opportunity to see the quality of your faith. And that's nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be scared of. God doesn't give letter grades. You don't need to worry about that. It's an opportunity to see and to celebrate. Look what he's doing. Like, uh, th- th- there's more patience coming out of me than there was last year. There's more self-control than there was five years ago. Like, celebrate that. The Holy Spirit's working. His fruit is being cultivated and produced in you. And none of us are perfect. There's always room for us to become more like Jesus. And so to say, how do you want to use this to make me more like him? The, the, the heat of that suffering will, will bring to the surface stuff that needs to be dealt with. If you're someone who tends to get angry, don't, just don't hang your head. Say, God, I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't know any other way of being. It's the only thing I've ever seen. It's the only thing I've ever experienced. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust that somehow you can do a work in my heart. You can heal whatever's in there so that I'm not giving in to fits of rage. God, I tend to get mopey when I'm going through a difficult time. I woe is me. I don't wanna be that way. I don't know any other way to be. But I'm asking you, do do whatever work needs to happen in my heart. So that's my my response is not one of self-pity. Again, not minimizing the difficulty, but dealing with it in a different way. So this is what I want to do. We're going to have the ministry teams. You guys can come forward. Bo, you can come on back. So I'm going to ask you to respond, recognizing for some of you, like this is a difficult thing to respond to. If you're someone whose hope is on life support, it's very risky, very risky to say, I'm gonna re-engage that because your hope may continue to be deferred. And so for some of you, today's not the day, honestly. It's not the day, and that's okay. But I think there's some of you who it is, and and you can take that step. If If you're in a trial right now, I would encourage you to let us pray for you, that God would strengthen you in the midst of that, that somehow you would be able to greatly rejoice. For me, when I think about greatly rejoicing, I think about worship singing. It helps kind of me engage my emotions and my heart. I'm not great at that in, in, in other ways. And so that may be something just really practically. If you're experiencing, if you're going through a difficult time that maybe you incorporate a bit more worship in your time with the Lord, whatever that looks like for you, that just, again, that, that's helpful for me, but You can take that for what it's worth. But regardless, we would love to pray that God would strengthen you in the midst of that and that he would continue to refine you and to make you more like Jesus and that he changed the circumstances, you know, ASAP. We're gonna pray that too. So I'm gonna say a prayer and I want you guys to go ahead. Y'all go ahead and come forward uh, as you feel led to do so and y'all can stand. We'll make sure that we have enough time to pray for everybody. God, I do wanna pray just, again, recognizing the sensitivity of some of these subjects, me not knowing everybody's circumstance, but you do. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you would apply the truth in the best way to each of our hearts. You know what we each need. I do wanna pray for people who are at risk of giving up hope. Their hopes have been deferred for so long. They're just sick of it. I pray, Holy Spirit, for you to comfort, for you to draw, for you to strengthen and encourage. I do pray for all of us that we would be people who have a great 
confidence in your willingness and your ability to work and whose love for you is not based on the results of that work. Would you do that within us? And I pray you'd be tender to people who are struggling with hope this morning. I do, and, and for those who are in, they're just in very difficult times, very dark nights. God, we pray for mercy for them. I don't want them to hear judgment or condemnation. God, I pray for mercy for them, that they would know your presence walking with them through these trials, that you never leave us or forsake us, even if we feel that way. You never do. I pray they would be reminded that you walk with us through the dark valleys, that they, in the ways that are the most meaningful to them, would experience your peace in the midst of suffering. Our prayer would be that that, that, that valley would, that they'd come out of that valley as, as quickly, as soon as possible. But until that happens, God, our desire would be for them to be able to exult, to rejoice greatly in their salvation, in their new birth, in their living hope, in this secure and permanent inheritance. And that they would persevere, that they would bear up well, in some cases under extremely difficult circumstances. So would you be tender to them as well, Holy Spirit? Jesus didn't snuff out a smoldering wick. He didn't break a bruised reed. And so we're praying for those who feel like that today, like a smoldering wick or a bruised reed. Would you be gentle and strong in their life? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 